Well, good morning. Hey, you guys are lively this morning. That's uh, at least lively for me, I, I think. Anyway, yeah, it's good to see you guys. Uh, this week has been a crazy week of celebrations in the Lewis household. Uh, at the beginning of the week on Monday, my uh, daughter Maya actually graduated from grade eight, so we were, you know, uh, really all excited about that. Yeah. And then, two days later, my wife and I celebrated our uh, 20th wedding anniversary this year, so that, that's been awesome. So I haven't been getting a lot of sleep lately, and then, uh, you know, on uh, July 1st, we had this great event here at, uh, at Bayview Glen Church where we hosted our neighborhood, we had our fireworks going on on July 1st, and it was great. Um, I just need to say this, for all of you who are in the, in the uh, audience today that came out to help for that event, I just, I just need to say thank you. You know, that was, and actually, I'm going to give you a hand, okay? Because uh, it, it was fabulous. I mean, I, uh, the fireworks, if you haven't gone to the Bayview Glen Facebook page yet, you need to go there and you need to check out, there's just like a, a little, it, it was a 10-minute show, but I think there's just a little snippet of the fireworks on the Facebook page. It was amazing. Um, the cool thing about it, though, was this, is that, I mean, I, I don't, I'm still getting to know you guys, you know, after a year, uh, almost a year here, I'm, I'm uh, still getting to know the faces, but I, I'm starting to recognize more faces uh, here at the church, but on Friday, I hardly recognized anybody, all right? And I went around and I was asking people who were at our church, who are familiar with, with uh, you know, who's at our church and, you know, who could be a visitor, and I was saying, hey, who, did, you, did you see people? Like, and, and they were saying, no, we were having problems, finding people that we knew when we needed help for something, and so all I can say is that this event kind of accomplished the purpose that uh, uh, we set out to do, and that was this, to actually have people from our surrounding community on our campus, and so it was, it was a great event, so I just want to say thank you again for those who helped out. Um, when you came in this morning, you probably noticed that our bulletin was a little bit condensed. It's condensed down to a postcard, and so you might be thinking, well, where am I going to write all the great sermon notes that, uh, you know, Pastor Dave's going to give me here this morning? You know, you're not thinking that at all, I know. Um, anyway, in the, uh, in the back, t- in, uh, the seat back in front of you, if you notice, there's actually two things there. Uh, the first thing is the, our Connect card. We've put our Connect card in front there. And so if you are here for the first time with us today, I want to say welcome. I'm glad you're here. If you could actually take a moment to fill out that Connect card and then please take it back to the... Uh, Info Center after the service, uh, there'll be someone to shake your hand and give you, a, uh, give you a free gift courtesy of Bayview Glen Church. But then also too, what we have in that seat, book, uh, seat back as well is, is actually a sheet where uh, you can take uh, notes for the sermon. That's kind of gonna be our practice here throughout the summer. We're gonna just kind of experiment with this and see how it goes. And uh, hopefully uh, it's something that you guys find very useful. Well, before we jump into things this morning, why don't we just bow in a word of prayer. Father God, we come before you, and uh, God, I'm just always amazed at how we respond as a congregation when we sing that song, Sovereign Over Us. Um, God, it's a word that we need to hear. It's a word that we need to have in our hearts as we think about the uncertainty of our times and the things that are going on in our world, and we just wonder, man, this world is spinning into chaos. But God, we thank you that you are sovereign, that you are a stable point in our unstable world. And so, Father God, as we come before you, as we uh, get to take a look at who you are and your character through, through your word this morning, through the Psalms, God, I just ask that you would be speaking to us all where we are at. 
Father, that as we look into your word, that we would find you there. And God, I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you are joining us for the first time this summer, we have been actually camping out in the Psalms. It's going to be something that we, a book that we spend the entire summer in. And uh, one of the things that we've been discovering about the Psalms is that as we kind of read this collection of songs and poems, we are most likely able to find ourselves in them. The words from the pen of the psalmist, although written thousands of years ago, resonate deeply within us. We find in the Psalms the expression of the full range of human emotions before God. The Psalms are deeply rooted in our human experience and help give voice to our deepest longings. As one Bible scholar puts it, the Psalms make it possible to say things that are otherwise unsayable. The Psalms make it possible to say things that are otherwise unsayable. Now, here's the thing with the Psalms. We, we know that they're poems, we know that they're songs. Um, I need to tell you, here's a little bit of a confession this morning. I am actually not a music guy, all right? I mean, uh, I am more, uh, I actually prefer lyrics to music. I mean, I, and, and, and so what this means is that I have a high tolerance for a bad melody, all right? I have a high tolerance for a bad melody as long as I can find the words meaningful. So when I find an artist that can create both interesting music and thought-provoking lyrics, they become instant favorites. But I will always, always choose content over melody. That's why I'll take Bono over Rihanna, or, sorry, <laughs> or the revolution songs of the 60s and 70s over the sappy love ballads of the 80s and 90s or some spoken word poetry with a minimal backbeat over today's gangster rap. You see, it's not enough to make me dance, and that's mostly because I'm a terrible dancer, but since artists of today wield such power and influence and have such a huge platform, I think they should say something that's actually worth listening to as well. Now, because of this, I have actually I've actually been labeled in my home as, by my daughter specifically as the song wrecker. All right, so here we go. This all came to a head a year ago as I heard my daughter Hannah passionately singing the, songs, uh, the words to the song Say Something by A Great Big World. Anybody here know that song? Yeah, I see some hands. All right, I, I'm gonna apologize in advance because I might wreck it for you right now. All right, so... Um, <laughs> so the lyrics uh, for part of the chorus say this, say something, I'm giving up on you. Say something, I'm giving up on you. And later on in one of these verses, this line appears, you're the one that I love, but I'm saying goodbye. Now I probably could have been more tactful in my approach to my daughter Hannah as I assessed her taste in music. I mean, I could have asked her, so what is it about this song that uh, makes you like it so much? But I chose the more direct route and looked at her and said, that's a terrible song. <laughs> now, I probably, don't, uh, I probably don't need to describe to you how Hannah reacted to this. I'll just say, when the conversation ended uh, an hour later, uh, with my daughter crying in my arms, yeah, I know, it's so terrible. My, my point had been made. 
You see, the reason why I reacted so strongly to the lyrics of that song was because I immediately found myself in that painful moment, imagining someone saying those words, say something, I'm giving up on you, to one of my kids. And the thought that they would be asked by someone to justify their existence or prove that they are worthy of someone's love and attention stabbed me like a dagger through my heart. Love doesn't do that. It doesn't require justification. And the words of that song stoked a father's protective fire for his kids, and that's why I think it's a terrible song. And now when that song pops up on Hannah's iPod, we both share an understanding smile, and she changes the song to something from U2's album, Rattle and Hum. The Psalms are songs that actually say something to move us in a more positive direction. Through the lyrics of their songs, the psalmists invite us into their moments, regardless of their joy or pain. Each psalm gives voice to the psalmist's own story and personal encounter with God. And in doing so, the psalms invite us to uh, contemplate our own human experience and help express our deepest longings. Eugene Peterson Peterson says this about about poetry and about the psalms. Poets use language not to explain something, not to describe something, but to make something. Our world for poet comes from the word poetes, which means maker. Poetry is not the language of objective explanation, but the language of imagination. It makes an image of reality in such a way as to invite our participation in it. We do not have more information after we read a poem. We have more experience. It is not an examination of what happens or, as, or has happened, but it is rather an immersion in what happens. So as we read Psalm 5 this morning, what moment or experience is the psalmist trying to invite us into? You can turn, if you have your Bibles, to uh, Psalm 5. Uh, an easy way for me to find it, if, if you're not sure where it is, is just take your Bible and kind of crack it to the halfway point. I, I cheated because I have a little bookmark here. Um, but you can, uh, you can do that, or uh, you can use the, the uh, Bible in the seat back in front of you, or, as always, the scripture is going to be up here on the screen. So Psalm 5. Let's, uh, I'll read this, um, but follow along with me. To the choir master for flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, but I through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. 
Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destructive. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their own guilt, God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor, as with a shield. You know, as I was reading over the psalm this week, the theme that kept poking its head out through the words of the psalmist was hope. It was hope. And I believe that the psalmist is actually extending to us an invitation of hope. So let's take a look at why I think this is the theme that is coming out here, why the psalmist is inviting us into hope this morning. You see, one of the hallmarks of any poetry is the use of poetic devices. The poetic devices that we are most familiar with are like metaphor, simile, hyperbole, etc. But one of the hallmarks of Hebrew poetry is the use of parallelism. You can identify when the psalmist uses parallelism because two or more successive lines will say similar things but will further develop the thought of the previous line. The author is not simply communicating the same thing but using different words. What the psalmist wants is for you to get a clearer image or understanding of what he is trying to say. You see, as, as humans, our, vis our vision is binocular, meaning that each eye sees the same object, object from slightly different views. What happens then in our brains is that these two slightly different images are superimposed on each other so that we perceive a singular image with greater depth. So when we stumble across a parallelism in Hebrew poetry, we need to keep in mind that the author is trying to communicate a singular point, but with a heightened meaning. And we find an example of this parallelism in the first three lines of Psalm 5. It's up on the screen behind me here. It's in these three lines. Give ear to my words. Consider my groaning. Give attention or listen to the sound of my cry. You see, in the first phrase, the psalmist calls God to give ear to his words. It's, it's a spoken plea. He wants God to hear his spoken plea. The second phrase requires God to consider or actually perceive what is not clearly spoken but actually remains in the heart of the psalmist. And the third phrase demands with a loud cry that God listen carefully to his petition for help. You see, here we find ourselves actually invited into the desperate experience of the author. This is not a picture of someone peaceably sitting in a meditative or prayerful pose. This is a picture of a desperate person on their knees and most likely on their face before God, loudly pouring their heart out, being overcome with waves of emotion to the point that the words that are coming out of their mouth are unintelligible to our human ears. But not, the psalmist hopes, to a God that hears them and can attend to the inarticulate murmurings, murmurings of an agonized soul. 
And so we see in verse three that the psalmist comes before God in the morning and prepares a sacrifice of prayers and then simply waits and watches with hopeful expectation that God will show up. You know, how many of us have found ourselves overwhelmed by our circumstances or in situations that we feel or think are so desperate and hopeless, we find ourselves saying things like, this is so terrible, I I don't even know where to start. I don't even know where to start to figure things out, let alone figure out what I'm supposed to do. You know, somebody told me in times like these, these I should pray, but I don't even know what I should pray or even how I should pray. It's in the midst of these of our most desperate moments that we, uh, that I find we respond in one of two ways. The first way is we let our situations paralyze us, and so we do nothing, hoping things will kind of just blow over and we can uh, go about our business. Or we go into fix-it mode, and we hope we can work things out on our own. You see, both of these responses don't point us towards the hope that we find in the desperation of the psalmist. They point us towards fingers crossed, wishful thinking, which even if things work out in our favor, doesn't leave us with any hope that will sustain us through the next time we find ourselves in a desperate circumstance. This may lead us to living lives that are more characterized by stress instead of hope, as we wait in fear for the other shoe to inevitably drop. It's here where we can find some hope in the experience of the psalmist. It's here where we can let the experience of the psalmist point us towards hope. The prayers of the psalmist can become our expression of hope. I like how Eugene Peterson translates verse three of Psalm Psalm five in the message. He says this, I lay out the pieces of my life on your altar and watch for fire to fall. The altar Peterson has in mind here is the one on which the Israelites offered their animal sacrifices. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a mess, all right? I mean, how many of us here have actually seen an animal sacrifice? Uh, Flushing the family goldfish doesn't count here. If we have any any understanding of what uh, that altar would have looked like, when sacrifices were in their full mode, when the, when the, the sheep and the bulls and, the, and the, the doves and all those things that were involved in Hebrew sacrifice were being offered, it would have been a mess. It would have been a mess. But just as the psalmist laid out his petitions before God in desperate, agonizing groans in order to find hope, if we are going to experience any hope in our desperate moments, we will have to lay out these messy pieces of our lives before a God who knows us and wait for God to show up. In fact, if we don't know what to say, in these, in these desperate moments, we can actually find hope in the fact that God knows us and knows exactly where we're at. You know, in Romans chapter eight, it says this, likewise the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he searches hearts and knows what is the, and, and knows what is the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You see, the prayer of the psalmist becomes our expression of hope because they put us in a space where we can lay out these chaotic places of our lives before a God who knows us, 
a God who hears us, a God who understands our situations and will attend to our greatest needs, a God who knows our deepest longings. Well, as we continue to move through the psalm, we, we find, um, what we find is that the psalmist's hope that, that God will hear him is not based on wishful thinking, but that the reason for his hope is rooted in his understanding of the character of God. Look at verse four, it says this, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. This word dwell has interesting connotations to it as it relates to the psalmist's understanding of God's character. You see, the word for dwell can also be translated as, as visit, or in other words, sojourn. It is used throughout the Old Testament to describe the transitory nomadic experience of those who lived in tents or non-permanent residences in, ancient, in the ancient Near East. The point that the psalmist is making here about God is that his character is so incompatible with evil that even a temporary coexistence, like, like a visiting nomad passing through the land, is ultimately impossible. To further his point about God's character, the psalmist goes on to juxtapose God's character with the character of the psalmist's opponents. In verses eight and nine, they, it, uh, the psalmist writes this, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Where God's character is defined as righteous, the enemies of the psalmist are called liars, who at the core of their being are bent on destruction. Where the psalmist understands that God can and will make straight the way of righteousness that he is to follow, his enemies seek to pull him away from that path and onto a path that leads, through, leads to death through flattery, seduction, and manipulation. But probably the most profound demonstration that the psalmist's hope is firmly planted in the character of God is what he writes in verse seven. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. See, the word that is translated as steadfast love is the word hesed, and what's really interesting about this word is that like the, word, like the Hebrew word shalom, we have no literal English equivalent for it. Several terms have been used to try to define it, such as mercy, loving kindness, faithfulness, and what we find in our text as steadfast love. But what said is about is that it's a relational term that describes both the internal character of God and his external actions of a God who seeks to maintain a relationship with his people. It describes both who God is and what he does. See, the psalmist understands his said or steadfast love to not simply be a characteristic of God, but to actually be who and what he is. That is why the apostle John confesses in one of his letters that God is love. So because the psalmist understands that God is love itself, he knows that anything that God does will be characterized by that same love. And so it is on the basis of that steadfast love, the psalmist dares to put his hope in God by asking for deliverance from his enemies and entrance into the house of God. This week, my oldest daughter, Micaiah, and I were having a conversation about this psalm. You see, actually, the reason that I'm preaching it this morning is because this is her favorite 
when Micaiah was 11 years old, she was experiencing to some degree uh, what the psalmist was experiencing. She was experiencing some people who were in her life that were uh, not helpful, people that were actually saying things and in, in some ways slandering her uh, behind her back, but then in other ways when they were together trying to pull her off the path that God had laid out for her, trying to pull her into a way of, of being and acting that she knew wasn't honoring to God. <clears throat> and when Micaiah was 11 years old, or like I said, she was experiencing a bit of what the psalmist was when he penned this poem. And it was one night while she was reading Psalm 5 that she decided to trust God as her foundation of hope. And she would later write these words in her testimony before she got baptized. It has been in the last few years when I felt God's presence real to me. I was struggling in school with friendships. I needed God to help me through these hard times. I would pray to him and ask him to help me. Psalm 5 became my prayer to God. It was during this time when I found confidence in the, in the love God has for me and hope that I would find friends that accept me for who I am, just like God does. I want to follow Jesus because he's my teacher and my example. I want to do what he does because he does the right things. I find in these words penned by my daughter what the, psalmist is, what the psalmist is inviting us into, a hope that rests in the very essence of who God is as one who is steadfast in his love towards us. You see, the psalmist is, is inviting us to understand that God's character becomes the foundation for our hope. And so as we move into the final stanza of the psalm, we have been invited by the psalmist to experience hope by allowing his prayer to become our expression of hope, as well as to understand that our foundation for hope is based in God's character. In verses 11 and 12, the psalmist actually invites us then now into the reality of our hope. Listen to verses 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, and cover, them, cover him with favor as a shield. You know, what I find really interesting about this, about what the psalmist wrote here, is that nothing has changed for the psalmist. Nothing has changed for the psalmist, and yet everything has when the psalmist gets up from this time of prayer that he's having before God after he's penned Psalm 5, he walks out into a world in which he is still being slandered, in which he is still, uh, still has enemies that are trying to pull him off this path of righteousness that God has set him on. But he makes this universal declaration that all of those, all of the righteous, will be covered, will be protected by God as like a shield as with a shield. And I think right now what the psalmist does is that he puts himself right into our personal experiences because he puts us right into the tension that we now live in. Because we know that when we are going through these desperate times that we live in this tension between God's deliverance and our desperation. We know that we, we are, our situations, whether we cry out to God or as, as we cry out to God, that in our desperation that we still live in that tension, we are still waiting for God to come, we are still waiting for him 
to deliver us. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, when we are in our moments of desperation, will we trust in the fact that our hope is real? Will we trust in the fact that our hope is real? This is something that I actually really struggled with uh, a few years ago. And uh, I, I, remember, I remember the day that, um, I remember the day that, that I found myself in a moment of desperation. I was sitting outside the school. We had been church planting in Montreal, and so to pay the bills for planting churches, I had actually, and God had provided this miraculous job as a teacher at this high school that, that I was at, and that's a whole story I can tell you another time, but it's just an amazing uh, opportunity that God opened up for me. But what happened on this day where I found myself in this moment of desperation is that I had just had a meeting with the principal, and uh, I went outside and I was just kind of sitting at the picnic table and I was actually reading through Psalm 23 and the news that I had just received from the principal was that because of a lack of students at that school, and this is, you guys know how education goes, when there's no, no students or not enough students, jobs get cut. And so my meeting with the principal was, uh, was this, was that my job that had been 100% had now been reduced, my teaching load was now being reduced to 60%. What compounded this moment of desperation for me was that it came at a time where I was coming from, a, from my house where my wife was actually not even able to get out of bed. She had been actually diagnosed with um, this condition called thoracic outlet syndrome and was living in chronic pain. And so here I was trying my best to do what God wanted me to do, to, to plant churches, to, to disciple people and all this kind of stuff. <clears throat> and yet, and support my family at the same time, knowing the reality that my own personal salary had been chopped in half. But then faced with the fact that because my wife was laid up in bed, that her salary was totally gone. We had lost over half of our family income, and I just remember sitting in, that, in those moments of desperation. Now, this went on for years and watching bill after bill pile up and trying to figure out how am I gonna pay these? How am I gonna get out? And I was crying out to God and he just didn't seem to answer. And so I thought, well, you know what? What I need to do is I need to go see someone that can help me. I, I need to go to a spiritual director. And so uh, in the midst of all this, I actually went to see an, an Ignatian nun who uh, led me on some spiritual exercises, and she, I, I left her meeting with this phrase that she had given me, and she said this, uh, she told me that I needed to do this, I needed to learn how to trust the depths of the Father's love for me. And I'm thinking, really? I'm watching my life fall apart all around me. I've been calling out to God. He's not listening. It doesn't seem like he's there. I felt abandoned by God. But the interesting thing about this is that in that moment of abandonment is when I realized the reality of my hope. Because in the moment of my abandonment or what I perceived to be my abandonment of, of God, the voice of Jesus rang in my ears, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, I realized that I was not alone in my pain. 
that God had, that God had entered into my abandoned state through his son, Jesus. John Stott, a theologian, writes this. He says, I could never, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is God for me. I laid aside his immunity to pain, or he laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. And our sufferings become more manageable in the light of this. You see, there is still a question mark against human suffering. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in a world as ours. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak, and not a God has wounds, but thou alone. This is what makes our hope real. This is the reality of our hope. The fact that God is not only present to us in our suffering, in our moments of desperation, but the fact that he has entered into our experience of suffering through his death and now walks along with us through resurrection. Hope is because God is. Hope is because God is. And so this brings us to the end of Psalm 5. This brings us to the end of Psalm 5. This brings us to the end of the psalmist's invitation. His invitation to find hope. His invitation to actually use his words, to use his prayers as an expression of hope. His invitation to actually say, you know what, our hope is founded in the character of God. A God who is steadfast in his love before us or to us. A God who is and who acts according to his character. Finally invites us to the reality that our hope is here. Because God is. Because God is. And this is why I believe that Psalm 5 is an invitation for us to experience God's hope. You know, in a moment, the uh, worship team is gonna come up and we are gonna uh, close our service today with the song that we sang right before I came up, Sovereign Over Us. Uh, it's, it's a song that I think is actually fitting to close out our service. Um, as we uh, consider the fact that God, it talks about a God being present to us and what people have meant for evil, these moments of desperation that we find in our lives, God has meant, or God can turn for good uh, to those, for those who love him. You know, I'm gonna invite the ushers to come forward as well because today is an opportunity, we have an opportunity to help those who find them in circumstances that are dire, in moments of desperation. 
and that is uh, through the collection of our benevolent fund. Um, what our benevolent fund does, we don't take any of this money for us as a church. It actually goes into a special fund that is set aside. It doesn't go to any of our budget. What it goes towards is for people that are in our community and in our congregation who, uh, who find themselves, like I said, in desperate circumstances and are in need of, of some help. So I'd encourage you uh, to give, give generously. As the worship team uh, prepares to come, let's just bow in a word of prayer. Father God, we just thank you today that you are the God that is. You are a God that is hope. So Lord, today we just rest in that. And Father, I pray for those in our congregation who might find themselves in dire circumstances, who might find themselves in desperate circumstances, that today your invitation to hope would be one that they take you up on. God, that they would find themselves before you, lying before you, pouring out the pieces of the chaos before you as a sacrifice, and then resting and waiting in that, waiting for you to come. God, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.